So my, uh, my son Daniel picked me up last night, uh, and then we went to go pick up Michael and his uh, girlfriend, uh, Lizzie. Uh, both my boys are dating amazing girls, um, and, and Mikey is the recent. I've, I've introduced you to Jensen, who's Danny's girlfriend, but uh, Lizzie is the granddaughter of Joseph Bondarenko, uh, the one who came and spoke here. I'm like, son, you're doing really well, boy. <laughs> We're going to improve that McCoy name before you know it. You don't get racehorses out of mules. You got to mate them up. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, <laughs> my wife hates that, but I can't stop saying it. So, and she's not here. So just don't tell her, okay? But as we were driving back, the boys were recounting. Uh, they picked me up on uh, yesterday, which would have been the 20th anniversary of me being the pastor of the church. And they were, yeah, thanks. And they, they were reflecting over all of the previous Good Friday services. And to their credit, they were recounting, Dad, you, you covered Joseph of Arimathea, and you covered both of the thieves on the cross, and you covered the perspective from the thieves, and, and, Mary, and, and, and they're like, what are you going to do now? <laughs> and they were giving me some thoughts, and, but the Lord had spoken to my heart um, in relation to my father. And there is a... Uh, a character in the Good Friday story that is covered in three of the four Gospels. Uh, he's not covered in the book of John, but interestingly enough about John's account of uh, the Good Friday events, uh, John's account doesn't include anyone who abused Jesus. He almost doesn't even want to mention their names, similar to when we have a serial killer or a mass shooting, there are those that don't even want their names mentioned, and that's John. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke go to great extents to list a man who was responsible for my dad coming to Christ. That's my dad as a lieutenant commander. He'd go on to obtain the rank of captain. Um, I was not quite two years old, August 5th, 1966. I, I would have been two five days from that date, where my father was written up in Time Magazine. Um, it's called McCoy's Navy. He was a, a commander of a bobtail cat cruiser called the USS Carronade. And as I was reflecting back on this article, it talked about the body count. And what this bobtail cat cruiser would do is it had a long bow with the bridge at the back of the ship so it could operate in shallow waters. They'd come right up on the beach and the entire bow of the ship was rocket launchers. Not very accurate weaponry. And they would get calls from um, squads or platoons of soldiers inland who were asking for ordnance to be dropped on coordinates that they would radio in. And then my father was the support of those rockets, that ordnance that would be shot into the direction blindly uh, that these soldiers on the ground would be directing. And it was very effective, but it devastated my father. He was a man under authority. He was a successful naval officer. But after the ordinances would be launched, they would have to go in and assess the body count of the Viet Cong 
And he would see burned villages and dead mothers and babies. And you have to live with that. My dad loved the country, he loved America. He didn't have much of an upbringing as far as the church is concerned. My grandfather, according to my aunt, who's, they've all passed, but my aunt said that my grandfather was a town drunk. They would farm the kids off to the vacation Bible schools and one day Aunt Jean said she was on the bus and all the kids on the bus were laughing at the drunk on the bridge and she realized it was her father. My dad traveled a lot because my grandfather couldn't hold down jobs. And when my dad had the chance to get out, he did. He was the only one in his family to ever obtain a college degree and rose to the rank of captain. When I came home one year and told him I'd become a Christian, his response was, get that Christian crap out of my house. He was a moral man. He was a good man, he was a good father and a good husband, but he didn't have time for religion because he had seen the worst side of it. He loved the country, he put his life on the line for it, but then he saw the devastation of those policies that he was ordered to obey, and he struggled with that his whole life. My brother-in-law, the first to marry one of the children of my mom and dad, Captain Harry James Blair III. He was a Marine captain. My dad didn't like the Marines much. <laughs> he said, you know, the Marines are part of the Navy, at which my brother-in-law would respond, yes, they are a department of the Navy, they're the men's department. Harry contended with my father. My father was a line officer. He had come through OCS. Harry was a Naval Academy graduate. My dad didn't think much of Naval Academy graduates, but he came to love Harry, and rightfully so. Harry loves the Lord, and he was persistent with my father at times where it would almost, and don't worry about the noise back there, uh, they're special needs boys and I love having them in the service and just deal with it. So that's all there is to it. So. And that's the way they're enjoying it. They pay attention better with, yeah. And actually I think they have more to say than I do, so it's okay. But um, Harry was persistent in sharing the Lord with my father. And it was this passage of scripture I'm to read to you that ministered to him. And it's from the Good Friday account it's out of the book of Matthew, and you don't need to turn there, we're limited on time, but it's Matthew 27, begins with verse 51, it says, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Matthew's the only one who covers that, and he doesn't give any insight, and that is the creepiest verse in the Bible, and I'll do a study on it later, but not today. But it's cool. And it happened. And I'll explain more of it later, but let's get to the part I wanted to get to. I don't know why I added that, but it's part of it. And at that point, when the centurion and those with him 
who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly. And the centurion said, surely or truly, this was the son of God. In all three accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he declares that Jesus is the son of God. But he uses past tense saying was as though somehow he no longer is. He was a pagan. He was a centurion. Prior to this passage that I just read to you, Matthew and Mark and Luke, including John, quote these words, and it's what they call the seven final words of Jesus on the cross. The Roman soldiers began to gamble for the clothing of Christ and his few earthly possessions and while they were dividing his garments and casting lots Jesus said with what strength he had remaining in his brutalized body he said father forgive them for they know not what they do at the base of the cross were the centurions gambling for his clothing they had mocked him he had endured this the shame they had said you can't save yourself, how will you save us? The thieves both mocked him, and we've covered all that. But the priests were present when that veil was torn, top to bottom, not bottom to top, separating the holy of holies that God now communed with man. And as it was said in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith in the early days of the church because what you just witnessed in the reading of that portion of Matthew shook them to the core. And they humbled their hearts and embraced Christ. There's two Spurgeon quotes I want to read to you in relation to the passage that says the earth quaked and the rocks were split. Spurgeon says, men's hearts did not respond to the agonizing cries of the dying redeemer, but the rocks responded. The rocks were torn. He did not die for rocks, yet rocks were more tender than the hearts of men for whom he shed his blood. He then says, these first miracles were wrought in connection with the death of Christ, were typical of spiritual wonders that will be continued till he comes again. Rocky hearts are torn, graves of sin are opened. Those who have been dead in trespasses and sins and buried in sepulchers of lust and evil are quickened and come out from among the dead and go into the holy city, the new Jerusalem. That's us. We're all a mess. If you don't think so, it's just pride. Give me an hour with you. <laughs> but this hardened centurion soldier says, truly, this was the Son of God. The scene of the crucifixion was so striking that even this hardened centurion was softened. This man had supervised the deaths of perhaps hundreds, if not thousands, of others by crucifixion. He knew there was something absolutely unique about Jesus. This was the Son of God. Trapp says, there are those that think these soldiers, our Savior's executioners, were truly converted by the miracles they had seen according to what Christ had prayed, and that was the passage that I read to you out of Luke 23. 
When Harry read that to my father, he said, sir, and that's what we called my dad, he said, sir, everywhere in the Bible where a centurion is listed, God has nothing but nice things to say. Centurions, the backbone of the Roman army, the most oppressive, tyrannical, ungodly force that was dominating the earth and had its proverbial knee on the neck of Israel. And yet God had nice things to say about centurions. You see, each of us have to decide who we serve, God or man. Each of us have to deal with micro-tyranny. Every decision you make is based upon who you serve. And do you make that decision based on fear or on power and love and a sound mind? What moves you? Who is your God? What is your authority? My father struggled because he knew the authority he obeyed failed. And he knew he did something wrong. It ripped his heart apart. My brother at school had to memorize a poem by Rudyard Kipling, who was a poet during the Victorian era, a man's man. My brother memorized this poem called Gunga Din. And as he had to recite it before my parents to make sure he was going to get a good grade, my dad listened and kept telling my brother, change it to this and do this and add the inflection here. And my brother said, Dad, you don't even know the poem, at which point my father began to recite it from memory. I'm 56 and I still don't have it memorized. <laughs> you may talk of gin and beer when you're quartered safe out here and you're sent to penny fights and Alder shot it. But when it comes to slaughter, you will do your work on water and you'll lick the bloomin' boots of him who's got it. Now in India's sunny clime, where I used to spend my time, a servant of Her Majesty the Queen, of all the black-faced crew, the finest man I knew was our regimental beastie, Gunga Din. He was Din, 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 you limpin' lump of brick dust, Gunga Din. Hi, slippery hither ow, water get it, penny lao, you squiggly-nosed old idol, Gunga Din. The uniform he wore was nothing much before and rather less than arf of that behind. For a piece of twisty rag and a goatskin water bag was all the field equipment he could find. When the sweating troop train lay in the siding by the day, where the heat would make your bloomin' eyebrows crawl, we would shout Harry by till our throats were bricky dry, and then we'd whop him because he couldn't serve us all. It was din, din, din. You heathen, where the mischief have you been? You put some jewelry in it or I'll marrow you this minute if you don't fill up my helmet, Gunga Din. He would dot and carry one till the longest day was done and he didn't seem to know the use of fear. If we charged or broke or cut, you could bet your blooming nut he'd be waiting 50 paces right flank rear. With his musick on his back, he would skip with our attack and watch us till the bugles made retire. And for all its dirty-eyed, he was white, clear white inside, get over it, when he went to tend the wounded under fire. It was din, 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 with bullets kicking dust spots on the green, when cartridges ran out, you could hear the front ranks shout, hi, ammunition, mules, and Gunga Din. 
I shan't forget the night when I dropped behind the fight where a bullet, uh, with a bullet where my belt plate should have been. I was choking mad with thirst and the man that spied me first was our good old grinning, grunting Gunga Din. He lifted up my head and he plugged me where I bled and he gave me half a pint of water green. It was crawling and it stunk, but of all the drinks I've drunk, I'm gratefulest to the one from Gunga Din. It was Din Din Din. Here's a beggar with a bullet through his spleen. He's chawing up the ground and he's kicking all around. For God's sakes, get the water, Gunga Din. He carried me away to where a dually lay and a bullet came and drilled the beggar clean. He put me safe inside and just before he died, I hope you like your drink, says Gunga Din. So I'll meet him later on at the place where he is gone, where it's always double drill and no canteen. He'll be squatting on the coals, giving drink to poor damn souls, and I'll get a swig in hell from Gunga Din. Yes, Din, 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 you Lazarusian leather beastie Gunga Din, though I've belted you and flayed you by the living God that made you, you're a better man than I, Gunga Din. You clap for Rudyard Kipling, but not mine. I thought of my father because he understood authority, he understood courage, he understood failure. Religion to him was more of the character of the individual before him. It made more sense when he saw people living it out. And I think that's the reason why this poem ministered to him so profoundly. The Victorian era was the expanse of Christendom They would call Indians pagans, but yet the testimony from Gunga Din, as Rudyard Kipling would put that forward, was one that caused this man to realize how far he had failed. He represented a nation that had conquered yet another, but the personal reflection and the personal responsibilities rest with every man. I think the reason why this centurion so ministered to my father is because he could relate to him. When you see bodies, you become cold. When you've experienced war, you become hard. When you just try to survive, You find a place where you're a walking dead man. You have no emotion. You see the pain and the struggle of life and you're unmoved. What could move a man that had witnessed hundreds of crucifixions? I wanna close with this story as we prepare to take communion. It's a narrative of a play that someone put together in relation to the experience of this centurion. My name is Marcus Antonius, a centurion in the legions of Rome and stationed in the land of Judea. For 25 years, I have faithfully served my emperor. Rising up from the lowest ranks, I have become the captain of 100 men in a regiment of 5,000. I have fought more battles than I care to remember in lands such as Greece, Persia, and Carthage. My blade has shed the blood of hundreds upon hundreds in a field of battle, and I have learned to fear nothing and no one 
for I have served in one of the mightiest armies that has ever marched upon the face of the earth. But to be stationed here in Judea, my sword has shed the blood of too many Judeans, for they had no army, no force to face in the field of battle. They were simply a pathetic, difficult, and backward country that hadn't the sense to bow before the throne of Caesar. Our nations accepted Caesar's rule. Other nations accepted Caesar's rule. Other nations bowed to the authority of Rome. But not these Jews. No, not these Jews. We knew it was their religion, their faith, in this one and holy righteous God which made their backs like iron and made it impossible for them to bow the knee to Caesar. Privately, we speculated that we would have to they would have to bow or we would destroy the very temple that they refused uh, to place before Caesar. They were a harsh, bitter, and unkind people, but to be fair, not all of them were that way. Some were kind to us, some were good. And most of those who were the ones who listened to the teachings of a rabbi known as Jesus. We Romans laughed about this Jesus. To us, he was little more than an itinerant preacher who had nothing better to do with his time than to wander about the countryside preaching of peace and love. We Romans knew that peace, his hand, as the, the actor would say, moves to the hilt of his sword. We Romans knew that peace came by the edge of the sword. And love, love was something you purchased. We were men of the world, we understood these things. To us, this Jesus was nothing more than a simpleton and a fool. Lucius, however, did not agree with us. Lucius was my friend and a fellow centurion, and he told me the strangest tale. It seems that this servant, his servant had become sick, and he was paralyzed and racked with pain, and Lucius was beside himself because this was his favorite servant. But then he heard about this rabbi who not only preached of love and peace, but it was rumored he could heal someone simply by touching them. The crippled were made to walk, the blind to see, the leopards were made whole again. So my friend sought out this Jesus and finally found him in a dirty backwater town. My servant, he said, is sick and in great pain. Will you come and heal him? And Jesus said that he would come at once and heal him. But Lucius boldly said, no, that will not be necessary. I am a man of authority and I say to one man, do this and to another, do that. You have only to say the word and my servant will be healed. My friend told me that Jesus looked into his eyes and marveled. Never in all of Israel, Jesus supposedly said, have I ever seen such faith? He returned home and he realized that what he had asked had been done. Lucius told me that very hour of the day his servant rose from his bed and was completely healed. Did it really happen? I, I do not know. I, was, I too was a religious man. And in my religion, there were many stories of great healings and miraculous occurrences, most of which we knew were false. So what did I know? Then one day I met this Jesus. He had been arrested the night before and brought up before the leaders of his people. They accused him of being a heretic. They said that he claimed to be the son of God and they condemned him to death. But because Judea was under the authority of Rome, they had no authority to execute him legally, so they brought him to Pontius Pilate, the governor of that region. They accused Jesus of being a traitor to Rome. They said that he had claimed to be the king of Israel, and he challenged the authority of Caesar himself. This was a crime wholly worthy of death on the cross, and if Pilate did not crucify this man, he was no friend of Caesar's. I was present when Jesus entered the room, and from the moment he stepped through the door, I knew something wasn't right. Pilate was a man accustomed to sending hundreds of prisoners to their deaths. I had seen him sentence men to be crucified 
without even flinching. But as the interrogation proceeded, it became increasingly apparent that Pilate was not judging this Jesus. Jesus was judging or interrogating him. Pilate's unease only increased when his wife burst into the room and dragged him off to the side, warning him in low tones not to have anything to do with this righteous man because she had had a dream about him in the night. Pilate sought to spare Jesus the pain of the cross, so he instructed me to take him outside to the outer courtyard and have him flogged. Flogging was a punishment usually reserved for the hardest of criminals. 30, 40, 50 lashes of a man's skin would hang the, a, a man's skin would hang from his back and chest in strips and the blood would pour from his wounds. One of every 3 men who were flogged died from the punishment. When we were finished, my soldiers began to mock him. They put a purple robe on his shoulders and fashioned a crown of thorns that they shoved down upon his head. Hail, King of the Jews, they cried. Then they blindfolded him and spat upon him and struck him and said, prophesy, O son of God, who is it that has struck you? But he never spoke. He never uttered a word. He stood there as one who still had the authority of a man of power. Finally, I returned him to Pilate. And Pilate thinking to gain the sympathy of the crowds, led this man with, ter with his terribly beaten body out before them. What would you have me do with Jesus, who is called the Christ, he asked. And the chief priests and the Pharisees went amongst the crowd and whispered, crucify him, crucify him. And the crowds cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And at last, even though Pilate was uneasy about this, he feared the crowds more and ordered me to take him outside the walls of the city to a place called Golgotha and put him on a cross. Almost finished. Crucifixion is one of the most terrible and cru cruel forms of execution known to men. At one time, Rome required the common soldier to put prisoners upon the cross, but they soon discovered that this was so demoralizing of the troops that they finally took to selecting one man who was the executioner. This was normally a man of such great strength that when it came Time to pin a man's hand and feet to the cross. With one blow, he could drive the nail through the flesh into the wood, the nail you hold in your hand. Roman soldiers who were assigned to stand guard, against, uh, stand guard of those dying on the cross often took to drinking large amounts of strong drink to dull their senses. One soldier wrote, of all the sounds in hell, none is more pitiable than those terrible cries through the silence of midnight where crucified men hang in agony and cannot die while, die while a breath of suffering remains. When men were beaten and men were being nailed to the cross, they often would spit on us. They'd curse us and threaten us and our families. But we all knew their threats were meaningless. Once a man was placed upon the cross and raised into the sky, they would never come down alive again. But Jesus was different. He never spat on us. or threatened us, or cursed us. Like a lamb going to the slaughter, he opened on his mouth. At one point during the day, Jesus pushed up on his feet, which were pinned to the cross, and took Aaron to his lungs, and he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They know not what they do. Initially, I joined in the mocking and the taunting of Jesus, but then the darkness came. It was noonday, and the sun should have filled the sky, but instead darkness came down like a curtain and the crowd scurried away. My own soldiers began to shrink back from his cross. For three hours, 
Darkness reigned upon the earth and at last Jesus pushed himself up again and breathed in one last gasp of air, crying out, Tetelestai, it is finished. And then he died. No sooner had he died than the earth began to shake beneath our feet and my men fell to their knees. I looked up at the man on the cross and said, surely this was the son of God. Three days later, it was rumored that this Jesus rose from the dead. Some of my own men told me that they were there when the earth shook once more beneath their feet. The stone rolled back from the grave and there was no one to be found within the tomb. Over 500 men were said to have witnessed this resurrection and this resurrected Jesus, but I was Roman. I worship many gods. Even, this man were, even if this man were actually a god, he would have simply been one of many. But I couldn't remove his words from my heart or the scenes of that day from my mind. I couldn't shake the fact that I was guilty of this innocent man's blood. I had been the one in authority, and I was the one who ordered his death. The book of Romans was written to the church in Rome. We have no historical data, and for my Catholic brothers and sisters, it doesn't take away from your papal authority of Peter, but we don't have any historical evidence of any of the apostles making it to Rome prior to the church being founded. The church was founded, many believe, by these Roman soldiers. In the latter days of my father's life, that hardened military heart that had witnessed death and destruction softened at the words of the Lord, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, the reason why those in authority understand this is because when you obey man, you end up sinning. When you obey God, it filters the way you live on the earth that you would never come to a place where you would yield to tyranny and orders that would be evil. The centurion made the choice. He recognized Christ as the savior. The one who had his servant healed, Lucius, they gave him the name in the story, is the one who bought the synagogue for the Jews. And when we travel to Capernaum, you can see the basalt layer, which is what that centurion paid for to allow the Jews to worship. We come this day in one of the most profound times in world history. And one question is asked of all of us. Who is your authority? Who do you serve? Because if you're serving man, the fear of man is a snare. And the way of the transgressor is hard. And you become hardened. And you come in this day and your heart is as hard as the rocks that were broken in the earthquake. But no matter how hard your heart, as was my father's, who would say to his son, get this Jesus crap out of my house. He would turn to me in the throes of Alzheimer's many years later, and he would say to me, 
what do you do? I say, I'm a minister. He said, my son is a minister. I'm very proud of him. Truly, Jesus is the son of God. His body was broken. His blood was shed to set us free from tyranny. We've all failed, but it's time to return to the true authority, the God who has come to give us freedom. Freedom from the greatest tyrant of all, ourselves. No longer fear man. Fear God and do as you please. And watch the world revive. We're going to take communion, um, and I love the song they're about to sing, if it's the one that's right there. The very first Bible study I ever participated in, not knowing what, where to go, was a man who had the funkiest southern voice, J. Vernon McGee. I got on the Bible bus, and the first song I remembered was, Jesus paid it all, right? Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white. You are so good. Let's stand and worship the Lord. And you can take communion while you're standing. <laughs>